All right. This episode of Owls at Dawn is brought to you by MUBI, M-U-B-I, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. If you're a longtime Owls at Dawn listener, you'll know that they've been our most trusted and loyal sponsor that we love very much. We'll remind you that every day, MUBI premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. With MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. So Austin, what's been on MUBI recently that's caught your eye? I mean, I had been wanting to watch Force Majeure for a really long time, and I was just doing a little scroll through their options, and it popped up. Um, as a reminder, I'm in Australia, so it depends on where you are regionally. Obviously, you're in the States, Troy, and if you're in the UK or if you're elsewhere and you're using it, you're going to probably have different selections. But um, I'd been really wanting to see Force Majeure, um, so I watched that, and I'm so freaking glad I did because I love it. Uh, it's amazing. I'm actually doing a scene from it in my acting class right now as well. Like That's how much <laughs> I, I loved it. But um, And then I watched a short film recently from Agnes Varda who's a French new wave um, filmmaker and I'd never seen this one. And so I watched that and then I watched another short film from Andrea Arnold. So, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you're going to get there um, depending on where you are in the world. Like I said, you'll have a different library, but honestly, there's always just amazing content um, that they have coming in and it's fresh new stuff every single day. So um, they have these, I don't even know who the movie curators are. We need to meet the movie curators. We need to like, just like glean from their encyclopedic knowledge. Um, but <laughs> They uh, they always choose uh, just choice films. And uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been checking out lately. So, yeah, that's that's the reason why you should have movie as opposed to yeah. any other streaming service. Right. Because if you were if you were having one of the other uh, we shall not name a popular streaming service, <laughs> you'd probably be searching for force majeure because you want to watch this great right. international film. And you'll, you'll end up getting the Will Ferrell, Julia Louis-Dreyfus American remake, which was <laughs> total shit. Right. Right. Downhill or downfall or something like that. Yeah, who knows? Um, yeah. You'd get that on accent. You'd be like, this is this is shit. What are people talking about? No. Movie curates it for you. They get the good original shit. Right. That's it, man. That's it. So, yeah. And um, the funny thing is, is, I, you know, the way I found movie was um, because Isaiah Medina, who obviously directed my film, Inventing the Future, mm -hmm. I found I, oh no, I'm sorry. Did I find Mubi first or did I find him first? I can't remember which, but I found him on Mubi and I found Mubi by him, something like, maybe it was a dialectical relationship. Um, and I would have never met Isaiah if it weren't for Mubi. And it was his first film that he did, 8888. So um, if people know of Isaiah's work, like, so that's the kind of stuff. I mean, experimental stuff, festival fresh stuff, classics of cinema, um, and things from all over the world. And I love when they do their retrospectives as well, where they like will focus on a particular filmmaker. And so they'll show a handful yeah. of that filmmaker stuff. That's one of my favorite things. And they're always, you know, important filmmakers that have contributed greatly to the cinematic language. So honestly, I mean, it's just totally convenient that we happen to have a sponsor that we actually love. So it's great. So check out movie. Yeah, just to remind you that uh, you can try movie free for 30 days at movie.com slash owls at dawn. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn for a whole month of great cinema for free. And we'll have that link in the show notes as well. And, and this is always a problem for autocratic regimes. Believing one's own bullshit never leads to good results. And this is like trains and blazes with a metal gate. 
Great. So as we said at the outset, we are really happy to welcome Sergei Prozorov to the podcast. Uh, Sergei is professor at Uvascula. Did I say that right? Perfect. <laughs> I had I had to write it phonetically, and I still probably didn't get it right. In Finland, he's professor of political science there. Um, if you have been a listener on our podcast for a while, you would remember him from our book series that we did, going through his series, Void Universalism. Well, we went through volume one of his series, Void Universalism. Um, the subtitle was Ontology and World Politics. And he has a second volume in that that is on political subjectivity. And he's just told us before we started recording that he's currently working on volume three, which is about how things uh, come to appearance in the world, um, which if you're familiar with volume one and volume two, you can probably kind of get some indication of what he will be getting at there. Um, but he has a new book out that just came out last year called Biopolitics After Truth. And we are very excited to have him come on to talk with us about the conflict in Ukraine that has reached um, new heights, obviously, with the most recent full-scale invasion by Russia. So, Sergey, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to chat with us. How are you this evening? Um, I think it's evening in Finland. So how are you? Uh, fine. It's been a long day, but uh, nice to be here. Yeah. Just to kind of get things started, can you tell people a little bit about your biography, a, just a tiny bit, maybe a minute or so um, about your history, uh, then your expertise, and then um, let's start talking about the kind of background, if we can, of this crisis. Okay, uh, so I'm professor of political science in Uvascula in Finland. I did my PhD also in Finland at the University of Tampere, and uh, since then I worked for a while uh, teaching political science and international relations in Russia, and then eventually moved back to Finland uh, for a series of research posts as well as teach teaching positions. I was for a while a uh, senior lecturer in political science in the University of Helsinki, and started at, in my present post in uh, 2018. My interests, my research interests are primarily in political philosophy as well as general philosophy, ontology, history of political thought, biopolitics, governance, governmentality. I have been writing about such authors as uh, Michel Foucault, Giorgio Agamben, Alain Badiou, Jean-Luc Nancy, so uh, continental uh, philosophy primarily of, of various kinds. And besides theoretical work, I've also done quite a lot of research on post-communist politics, particularly Russian politics, and I've tried to apply as well the philosophical and theoretical perspectives to uh, this subject matter. So my book, The Ethics of Post-Communism, came out in 2009, uh, basically applied the Gambans' approach to history, to the, the post-communist um, condition. So I'm basically doing political theory, philosophy, as well as uh, studies of, uh, of post-communism. And, and now in terms of your own 
biography. Were you born in Russia? Were you born in Finland? I know that there's um, a very close relationship between kind of like the doors of immigration between those two countries. Uh, I was born in Russia and I got my first degree in Russia, but later on moved to Finland for the graduate studies. Okay, great. Troy, do you want to kind of kick things off here with uh, this the world situation at the moment? Yeah, so um, given an, our audience knows that we're philosophers, we're not uh, involved in political theory, unless insofar as it dovetails with um, philosophy and political philosophy. But it seems like given that um, our audience is fairly diverse and um, is all over the world, but I'm guessing it's mostly going to be English-speaking, um, you know, Anglo-American kind of audience. Probably best for us is to get a little bit of a history lesson on the geopolitics involved over the last, um, I mean, however long you think is relevant to explaining what exactly is going on in Ukraine. So uh, would you mind giving a, a short little uh, geopolitical lesson for us? All right. Well, it's always possible to go back uh, a long time, but it's not very <laughs> advisable uh, to do it. Um, we don't need. I'd, I mean, I'd love yeah. to know more about the Romanovs, but maybe maybe we'll save that for a future episode. <laughs> yes, I think uh, we only need to go basically as far back as 2004, because uh, what we observe today is basically you could say third time unlucky. Yeah, this is the third time the Putin regime attempts to intervene in order to dominate Ukraine. The first time was 2004, the Orange Revolution, as it is known. It began after the attempt to falsify the results of the presidential election in order to install a pro-Russian candidate. Yes, that was the first attempt. It failed. The Orange Revolution erupted. Eventually, a new round of the election was um, uh, held, and uh, the pro-Russian candidate lost, and the pro-European candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, uh, was elected. That's the first step. The second one, we need to fast forward 10 years to the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, which happened after that pro-Russian president Yanukovych did actually manage to be elected in 2010. And in 2013, he abandoned the plans to sign the association agreement with the European Union. After this abandonment, which was heavily pressured by Russia, Another revolution erupted that lasted all the way through February uh, 2014. At the peak of this revolution, Yanukovych escaped to Russia and a new government, a pro-European government, uh, emerged. And in response to this, Russia annexed Crimea and sent the first volunteer forces and eventually regular troops to the eastern regions called Donbas leading to the formation of two breakaway territories that were named People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. So that's the uh, story of the, of the second stage. And this first stage, uh, the second stage story ended in 2015 with the so-called Minsk agreements. There are actually two of them, Minsk I and Minsk II, that stipulated the way that those breakaway territories are going to function and the conditions on which they can be reintegrated into Ukraine with sort of maximal autonomy or even veto powers on foreign policy. 
But the realization of those agreements did not really progress much due to the major disagreement on the key question, and that is border controls. Yes, so mm. Ukraine insisted that it must first regain the control of its borders before it could elect the local government in those regions or let those regions participate in the elections in, in Ukraine. And so the story of the Minsk agreements then came to an end a week ago, uh, or two weeks ago, sorry, last month, uh, uh, on Monday, February 21st, Russia itself abrogated the Minsk agreements altogether, recognizing those breakaway territories as independent states. And then, cutting a long story short, on February 24th, Putin started the invasion of Ukraine with the pretext of actually responding to the request of these breakaway territories for military assistance. So first the recognition of these as quasi-independent states, and then these states respond, these states ask for military assistance and Putin responds affirmatively. The rest, I think we could observe. So essentially, the most recent one is um, it's it's a very tricky move. You um, you invade an area, you take over the area, you say, hey, let's have diplomatic talks about what we're going to do in terms of the border. The other side kind of gets a little bit tough. They dig their heels in and you say, well, actually, now you've invaded our territory um, and you are invading us and you are a hostile actor. Therefore, we must now act aggressively. And that's kind of the pretext, so to speak, for this most recent launch was that actually they were kind of defending themselves. Is that what they're trying to argue? Uh, they're trying. Uh, it's difficult to see, actually to see what they're uh, uh, trying mm. to argue. They were trying to say that uh, Ukraine posed a threat towards those breakaway territories. What those, yeah. well, that threat consisted in, nobody can tell. There are um, observers from the OSCE who were there who didn't register any abnormal military activity or even quasi-paramilitary activity on the part of Ukraine. So it seems to be basically a, a pretext. Yeah. One of the big things that we've been seeing is, um, you know, also claims about like denazification of Ukraine. And um, uh, then there's a lot of people, especially on like, I don't know what you'd call like the ultra left or you have people who are like, maybe ultra left isn't right, but like maybe for lack of a better term, like the MLM, like Maoist Leninist types who are very sort of pro-Russia, who are are very keen to remind us about like NATO encroachment, especially, you know, um, after agreements discussing how NATO would not advance eastward. But then a lot of these other countries have been integrated into NATO. And so there's a lot of discussion about how this is kind of um, uh, a resistance against the unipolar balance of of the world with, you know, like the empire of the United States and, and Western Europe kind of taking over. And that this is like a good thing because we have we have another uh, a, a, a multipolar um, power struggle in the world to resist the just simple, bland hegemony of a single power. Can you kind of touch to this um, and, and and maybe kind of if we can start peeling at, at the thread at this and see if we can pull something out of it? Yes. Let's talk about the denazification first, which is precisely one of those um, uh, terms of political discourse that belongs precisely to the realm of what is known as post-truth. <laughs> it seems to, to be that uh, the Putin regime is very purposefully appropriating terms 
of discourse that it knows can be used against it. And it uses them first. So that then whoever uses those terms against him would be accused of basically repetition. Hmm. So the memory of people in Ukraine, those who lived through the Second World War, is precisely the memory of being bombed by the Nazis when they invaded in 1941. So it is the Russian side or the Putin regime that can be accused of behavior analogous uh, to those of the Nazi invaders. But it has already appropriated the term and accused Ukraine of some sort of Nazi associations. This means that it has disabled the criticism as it were preempted. The whole story about uh, uh, the Nazis also dates back to the revolution of dignity in 2014, when the uh, Russian propaganda machine basically seized on the fact of the presence among the demonstrators of uh, nationalist groups, many of uh, which gonna have uh, banners or T-shirts with uh, the, the portraits of uh, one of the key Ukrainian nationalist politicians of the 1940s, uh, Stepan Bandera, who is considered a, a criminal and Nazi collaborator in the Soviet Union and in Russia, and who is considered a national hero uh, who actually suffered a lot from the Nazi regime in Ukraine. So it, they seized on that and used, as it were, this fact in order to brand the entire opposition as being nationalist or Nazi, which are the terms that function kind of interchangeably um, in the Russian discourse. While in fact, the nationalists were obviously a very small part of the resistance movement, which include, included everyone from monarchists to anarchists, and uh, whoever you find in between, environmentalists, leftists, liberals, um, and so on and so forth. In fact, uh, it actually testified to the genuinely you know, popular nature of the resistance movement and the opposition movement that it had actually irreconcilable elements present within it. But yeah, that's... In, Russian, in the Russian discourse, this was uh, used in order to brand the entire movement Nazi, uh, which uh, obviously makes very little sense considering that uh, the current government or the, the current president is a Russian-speaking Jew. Uh, who would be very difficult to uh, accuse of any even nationalist sympathies, let, let alone uh, Nazism. But um, unfortunately, this theme, this is uh, the kind of the post-truth situation, this theme became widespread and it became used in the Western discourse as a justification of uh, various Putin supporters on the right, on the far right, as well as on the uh, far left, because uh, it's actually difficult to justify this support. So one can do it by pointing to the presence of the nationalist or the Nazis, saying, I'm never going to support a country or movement or a party in which there is this uh, sort of nationalist um, presence. I just wanted you to elaborate a bit on um, the state of of politics and and sort of dissension within Ukraine. I know that in America, it's since this is the first time you're really hearing about Ukraine, um, it gets cast normally as like 
you know, it's the it's a democratic country which used to be part of the Soviet Union, and they're resisting Russian imperialism, and that's really all that we get. Um, but there's there's divides within Ukraine politically between the West and the East, between pro-European and between nationalist groups, right? I mean, it's much more complicated than just a single a single set of people in opposition to Russian imperialism. That's the end of it, right? Uh, yes. Uh... Until two weeks ago. <laughs> mm. It was complex, now it's simple. Mm. That's one of uh, the grand achievements of uh, well, Putin's geopolitical genius, you could say. <laughs> uh, before that, yes, uh, Ukraine is a kind of uh, vibrant and yet, if still, imperfect democracy, even though I must say that uh, in my reading at least the imperfection belongs to the concept of democracy. So if you have a perfect democracy, you're in trouble. <laughs> so uh, it's a democracy which is very pluralistic. Uh, in the parliament, you have uh, a variety of forces from uh, the pro-Russian to uh, pro-European. The Nationalist Party is actually out of the latest uh, iteration of the parliament and when it was in the parliament the party called freedom or svoboda it only had five percent of the vote so once again this kind of nationalist uh, presence or influence was always uh, overrated but the interesting thing is the current uh, president uh, Vladimir Zelensky and uh, his party which is called servant uh, to servants to the people it actually managed to override the divide between the East, East Ukraine and West Ukraine. Zelensky himself in the presidential election and then his party in the parliamentary election got the majority pretty much everywhere, in the East as well as in the West. It's a smaller majority in the East than in the West, but it is a majority or close to a majority. I think the lowest rate it received, lowest uh, number of votes it received uh, in the Eastern parts was around 42%, which is still a much uh, higher than the, uh, the the other parties. So this actually sort of showed that uh, it is quite simplistic to analyze Ukrainian politics in a binary fashion, that there's Western Ukraine, which is pro-European, and there's Eastern Ukraine that is pro-Russian. There is no evidence whatsoever that the large cities of East Ukraine were pro-Russian. Maybe in uh, the 1990s when that actually meant something completely different because the mm. relations between the two countries uh, uh, were very, uh, very different. But in the current situation, the divisions that did exist between various parties, center-left, center-right, more nationalist, uh, uh, more liberal or uh, progressive, uh, all of that has now become simplified in a new binary structure. And basically, there is Zelensky, who is supported by 95% of the population, according to the to the latest polls, and uh, the percentage is pretty much the same in the east and in the west. And it is the eastern city of Kharkov, for example, which was supposedly pro-Russian, that both mounted so far the greatest resistance and uh, suffered most intensely from the bombings. Also, the the bombings of the civilian uh, sector, the residential, uh, residential areas, etc., etc. So I think that we have here something like a very tragic empirical refutation 
of the idea that East Ukraine is somehow sympathetic to Russia, at least in, in this in this present round. Do we know why Ukraine um, has been so split between the pro-EU side and then maybe the previous Russian sensitivities? Is it just easy enough to say, oh, they're Russian speaking and, you know, this is a former communist state and they're like um, residues of influence there. And that, um, and then on the Western side, I mean, obviously speaking in, in, in kind of typical caricatures here, it's just that you get like young people who want liberal democracy and they want like a little bit more freedom of, uh, you know, to use iPhones and social media technology and they're consuming Western like TV shows and stuff like that. Like, can we speak a little bit about maybe the cultural as well as the political divide and maybe kind of what's explaining why those tendencies exist? So in this standard picture, as I say, is no longer no longer holds true. Yeah. Uh, West Western Ukraine, which was once Eastern Poland, yes, which was uh, annexed uh, by Stalin uh, after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Yes, in 1939, is the most pro-Western part because it was, so shall we say, in the Soviet Union for the least, the smallest amount of time. Okay. That's the most pro-European part uh, of Ukraine. That's the, the part which actually fought the Soviet army until the middle of the 1950s, the guerrilla, guerrilla warfare that, um, that took place after the end uh, of, the, of the Second World War. Well. Conversely, the uh, East Ukrainian uh, regions, such as uh, uh, the Donbas, they, during the Soviet Union, there was quite a lot of migration of the Russian population, the Russian workers, to those uh, areas, so that the Ukrainian narrowly defined cultural influence became perhaps somewhat diluted in those regions. Hence, those regions predominantly speak Russian or the or a kind of dialect that mixes Russian with Ukrainian, while in the West you have Ukrainian language spoken and uh, uh, Russian considerably less so. And yet, again, there's uh, a number of uh, problems also uh, with uh, with this picture, which have to do with the Russian weaponization of this issue of culture and especially of language. Yes. So one of the accusations after the revolution of 2014 was that in Ukraine, in the post-revolutionary Ukraine, uh, Russian is no longer used as the state language. The Ukrainian is the only language that can be used as an official or state language. So there is some sort of repression of, uh, of the Russian language there, which is uh, very far from the truth. It was and uh, still is so which is easily sort of disproven by the fact that as the repression of uh, mass media and civil society in Russia increased, starting from perhaps around 2012, Putin's uh, return to the presidency after a brief period as, uh, as prime minister. So after this repression grew, lots of journalists or activists have moved from Russia to Ukraine where they worked perfectly well in the Russian language. I read every day the news, news and newspapers in Ukraine. In Russian, everything is available in both languages or more. So there's uh, definitely no oppression of uh, Russian or Russian speakers. Mm -hmm. um, 
in Ukraine. So I think that the the divisions are very much over overstated. Uh, there, there are generational divisions, perhaps, but uh, they do not neatly fall into this pro-Europe, pro-Russia part. Yes, it is possible to be a Ukrainian conservative against the youth values that you mentioned, the talk shows, the iPhones, whatever else. <laughs> yes, there are Ukrainian conservatives, just as uh, perhaps there are Russian liberals in Ukraine, in the in Eastern Ukraine, who definitely do not subscribe to the tenets of, uh, of Putin's uh, ideology. So the problem is precisely this uh, weaponization. Uh, there can be all sorts of differences within a country. That's what makes a country richer culturally. When those differences are weaponized and turned into a binary kind of lines of conflict, okay, this leads on the other hand to political uh, impoverishment and uh, ultimately, uh, of course, um, to civil war. And why it might be said that Russia wanted wanted to promote civil war in Ukraine, it couldn't do so, and mm. it didn't succeed in doing so. Hence, the current intervention. Yeah, it often seems like the whole like, oh, the young kids they just want they want liberal democracy and they want like uh, social media and they want freedom. It just usually it comes in the guise of like. Look at all the shiny stuff we have over here, and we want, and everyone wants that. Like, who who wouldn't want that? And it always seems a little bit convenient that that is like the the narrative that you hear from Western media outlets. So you never know how accurate it is. I mean, iPhones are great and all, and social media is great and all, but I'm not sure that everybody should want to be a social media influencer, or that everybody does. I don't know how strong that poll is in your um, in your support for political things. Maybe it is. I don't know. But Troy, you looked like you were going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. So, Sergey, you mentioned that, um, ironically, part of Putin's a political genius here is unifying whatever dissension there exists in Ukraine, um, unifying them all uh, against, you know, the advance of Russian imperialism here. Can you can you give us a clue into what 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 the ideological drive is for Putin and his backers, what they think they're going to gain from this. It seems to have already backfired pretty immensely on some respects. Um, but what's what's the governing principle here that uh, if civil war can't be instigated in Ukraine, then what does invasion really serve Putin in Russia? Yeah. Well, uh, as um, already mentioned in the beginning, this is the third intervention, right? So uh, in a sense, Putin is simply being persistent. That's the simplest explanation. Um, another explanation, and here I would actually make an exception, and I would use one of the terms uh, that Putin uses in, in his own discourse. I generally try to avoid that. Uh, in many recent speeches, he said that Ukraine is becoming, and this is the term, an anti-Russia. Yeah. I'm not sure what he meant, and that's probably not important. But uh, in a certain sense, a different sense, this is true in a way. Yes, in recent years, the contrast became very much pronounced. Yes, Russia descends more and more into outright tyranny. Yes, from a kind of bureaucratic authoritarianism of the first uh, Putin presidencies to an outright personal autocracy. While Ukraine is developing into a vibrant, if I said, still imperfect uh, democracy. 
Well, Russia officially embraced the ideology of imperialism and the recovery of uh, whatever remains of, uh, of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. Ukraine is actually a multicultural, pluralistic society. And it becomes, and it has become increasingly a safe haven for the Russian opposition. Where do people move? Primarily when they try to evade the Putin regime, they move to Ukraine. After the war started, they started moving to Georgia. During one week, there's probably 100,000 Russians that have fled to Georgia. In both are precisely the countries that uh, Putin has been targeting. Yes, Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, the three Western former Soviet republics. Those are the three uh, democratic republics uh, of uh, the, the former Soviet Union, and they kind of remain the main targets of uh, either pressure, covert interventions, or the overt invasion, as, um, as in the case of the Ukraine. So it is becoming an anti-Russia, of course, only because Russia itself has assumed a rather unappealing form of uh, an imperialist power. And this leads to a sort of competition, yes, uh, uh, between the two, between Russia and an anti-Russia, between the imperialist Russia and uh, democratic Ukraine. And this competition obviously led to... Um, uh, ultimately erupted uh, in war. Uh, the second reason is that this this war is part of a wider, you'd say, assault of uh, the Putin regime on Western liberal democracies as such. So it doesn't include only those three interventions in Ukraine, but also you can say the five-day war in Georgia in 2008, or electoral interference in the United States in the 2016 elections and all over Europe in 2015, perhaps up to, up to today. Um, it has been widely discussed, this type of assault, as an attempt by Putin to, as it were, replay the end of the Cold War to Russia's advantage. The attempt to retake whatever was lost. Yes. So for Putin, the end of the Cold War was presumably a tragedy. He wants to replay the final episode as if it is a video game. Yeah? Where you replay just the end. Not very realistic. Yes? Uh, more, more often than not, you have to start from the beginning <laughs> and to play the whole thing. And uh, there's definitely no guarantee that, uh, that, uh, that one would win. But here... Uh, what aids uh, Putin is uh, this sort of ideological view of the West as weak and decadent, and hence mm. unable to defend Ukraine or actually itself. This is something uh, where uh, Putin, if you like, has been apparently listening for too long to the same ultra-conservative and alt-right commentators whom he himself has promoted in the West. Yeah? Mm. And, and this is always a problem for autocratic regime. Believing one's own bullshit never leads to good results. So for, for, for Putin, the West is weak, it is corrupted, 
by all sorts of progressive values, especially the greatest enemy, of course, is the what is known as LGBT ideology. I don't know what sort of ideology that is, but that's definitely the kind of a scarecrow image, something that definitely uh, weakens the West. And the weaker it is, the more for chances Russia has in this idea of replaying the end of the Cold War when the West was apparently stronger and the LGBT ideology had not yet corrupted it that much. Can we talk a little bit about, yeah, I had heard this before that um, the, I, there was some article or a few articles that had been written in Western media about how, you know, Russia was invading Ukraine because the West is woke and uh, Russia doesn't like wokeness. And maybe that's the LGBT ideology that you're talking about. Um, so does it then, and then a lot, there was a lot of pushback that was like, no, Russia's not invading because the West is woke. And then they go into all of these like strategies about like, you know, you got to get the Southern sea. And it was all about like strategic positioning and then NATO encroachment. It seems to me that, 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 that there's like, um, a really multi-causal way of trying to understand this. And we have to sort of understand how all of these things fit together. And I think that's, what's really confusing a lot of people is. I, I think it seems that the motives behind um, these actions seem for a lot of people out of nowhere, but really, obviously, they're not. You know, these tensions have been persistent. Um, they've been bubbling and, and rising higher at certain points, receding at other points. Um, can we talk about one of the other maybe big causal factors um, maybe one of the huge proximate causal factors is the encroachment of NATO. And, and we kind of touched on it a second ago with, with an earlier question um, and how, you know, a lot of a lot of like um, like pro Russia leftists want to constantly remind us that, you know, NATO is encroaching so that there is an act of imperial encroachment and that this is kind of either. Putin giving NATO what they deserve because of their encroachment and because of their backing out of their agreement to not push too far to the east, um, yep. or that this is like, um, or that this is like a, a good thing from the perspective of like the long historical view that actually pushing back against a unipolar um, imperialist encroachment is something that we should support in overcoming capitalism or certain forms of economic exploitation, socioeconomic exploitation, et cetera. Can we, can we kind of talk about this for a sec? Uh, yes. To begin with, I would just like to say about uh, encroachment. It's sometimes advisable to look at the map of Russia and its border with NATO and then try to explain <laughs> to how exactly Russia is supposed to be encroached. Uh, we're talking uh, less than 5% of Russia's borders. Um, the second point is that the first two interventions in Ukraine in 2004 and 2014 took place when Ukraine was constitutionally a neutral country. So NATO had nothing to do with it, and it was not a member of NATO and it was not applying to be, and that didn't help it. Actually, the objective of entering NATO was only adopted by the government after the annexation of Crimea uh, in 2014 as part of government strategy. And then it was officially included in the constitution of Ukraine in 2019. So um, 
the, the NATO issue did not play a part in the first two uh, interventions. But secondly, uh, if we look at the contemporary discourse, uh, again, very sadly, the, this war can be seen as the most, again, tragic, expensive and lethal advertising, advertisement for NATO membership that anybody could offer. Yeah? Mm. We hear on a daily basis that NATO will not intervene in Ukraine since it would risk this would risk war with Russia. We also hear on the daily basis as well that NATO will defend, and I quote, actually, every inch of the territory of its member states if mm. those are threatened, such as the Baltic states or Poland or Lithuania, for example. So it looks like the only way for Ukraine to ensure its security is to have joined NATO in the past, which it did not do. And since it hasn't, it's kind of screwed. The only other alternative is also in the past. It consists in not having renounced its nuclear weapons in 1994, as the famous realist John Mearsheimer famously advised back then in an article called The Case for Ukrainian Nuclear Deterrent, which is something that uh, uh, the left that you mentioned should perhaps consult. Um, about the NATO uh, narratives and the imperialism, it's, um, there are two narratives of this kind. They are sometimes mixed, which is already strange and unfortunate. The first one is leftist, the second one is realist. Yes? So the leftist approach claims that it's all the fault of the West, the USA, and NATO. Why? Well, firstly, because everything is their fault, apparently, once one looks at this discourse. They, they, uh, once one seriously considers it, there's only one agent and there's only one process, capitalism, that uh, is mentioned yeah, in those theories, which is a very strange view of the world. Uh, secondly, uh, the second reason, if we go inside the narrative, it's because the West apparently humiliated Russia at the end of the Cold War and abandoned its promises not to expand NATO. Those promises are never mentioned in any treaty or any other official document that exists on paper, and all of the references are to discussions whose members are either not around to confirm them anymore or do not confirm them. So this apparent humiliation, according to this logic, which I'm trying to reconstitute here, presumably gives Russia to attack a country which, by the way, is not a member of NATO. So Ukraine is paying for the apparently broken promises of NATO not to expand. Ukraine, which is not uh, moving into uh, NATO anyway. So it seems like what we have here is the sort of justification that uh, could be summed up in a phrase, look what you made me do. Yes? Mm. Domestic abusers use that mm. a lot. Yeah? Mm. So what, happen what is happening in Ukraine is not NATO enlargement, it is Russia enlargement. If anything which is enlarging, it is Russia at the expense of Ukraine. Crimea, the Donbas republics, etc. Now the whole territory. Besides so, just besides just nuclear, um, are there also um, oil and gas considerations to to kind of factor into this as well? So that um, I've heard something that like Ukraine 
I, don't, I can't remember the size of their 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 possibility for producing nuclear, but they would be or they are like in the top 10, top 15 producers in the world of, of nuclear energy. And then um, they could have a massive stockpile of nuclear weapons, um, but they don't. Right. Is that is that right? Is it something like that? And then also there's gas reserves. And, you know, Crimea is like, a, I guess, a really sort of rich territory and that new new res, new reserves were recently discovered in Ukraine that would make I think maybe that's what it was. It was like new reserves were discovered that would make them one of the richest oil producing or or gas producing countries in the world. Um, and so is that also part of this? Like uh, you mentioned nuclear a minute ago, but is it nuclear? Is it gas? Are these energy resources something that's also under consideration? Um. Okay, well, with regard to uh, to nuclear weapons, Ukraine renounced nuclear weapons in '94. There, there's nothing left that okay. has been checked a million times. Uh, it did so by signing the Budapest Memorandum, where it said that uh, Ukraine renounces nuclear weapons in exchange for the guarantees of its security and territorial integrity from the nuclear states: the United States, Russia, Britain, and France. So in 2014, this obviously was broken, and uh, as such, it shows that uh, the move <laughs> was perhaps uh, not exactly the best, the best idea. But there is obviously no uh, evidence anywhere of uh, Ukraine trying to develop uh, 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 nuclear weapons. It has uh, nuclear, lots of nuclear power stations, which are currently endangered. Uh, during the, uh, the the war period, but uh, nuclear power and nuclear weaponry are very different production processes. It's uh, impossible to convert yeah. um, a nuclear power station into the, the, the site of uh, weapons production. Uh, as for other energy resources, well, uh, the uh main thing that was uh, in the news, of course, was uh, the Nord Stream 2, which was the pipeline right. that actually bypassed Ukraine, because Ukraine is currently an area of transit of Russian gas that is being uh, sold uh, to Europe. And what Russia wanted to do for a very long time is to bypass Ukraine, to sell the gas directly uh, to uh, to Germany and then from Germany to uh, to other uh, European countries. The idea being that as long as Ukraine was the main transit point for Russian gas, Russia was kind of invested in stability in Ukraine in some sense, so that the transit keeps going. If the bypass pipeline functions, then Russia no longer cares. The mm. role of Ukraine as the, the, the transit uh, uh, to Europe no longer uh, plays a role in its calculations, perhaps enabling the kind of destructive uh, uh, warfare that uh, that uh, we're seeing uh, today, which might well dis disrupt uh, the transit uh, to Europe uh, eventually in the course um, of this conflict. But uh, in a sense, if we're talking about resources and if this argument about resources is, again, used in this type of uh, Left is discourse that that uh, the, that you mentioned. 
it just shows, in a sense, the duplicity of, of, uh, of this approach, right? It claims to be anti-imperialist, yes, and uses the word a lot. But what, in fact, it does, it justifies a classical imperialist war of conquest led by a regime which is, frankly, at odds with any left-wing policies or ideas, yeah? So, mm -hmm. similarly, while this left discourse prides itself on being post or anti or decolonial, it actually parrots the discourse of spheres of influence, which is a classical 19th century colonialist discourse. And it places thoughtlessly, I must say, into the Russian sphere of influence, either the second largest country in Europe, which is Ukraine, or the entire 300 million population of Eastern Europe, which suddenly finds itself for some reason uh, in the sphere of influence of a country with uh, a population which is half of that. And finally, while it always brandishes the cause of anti-racism, this type of discourse is so patronizing and often humiliating for Ukrainians and uh, East Europeans more generally, so much so that it actually smacks of racism in its own right, mm. as entire nations are consigned to imperial domination that denies their very existence. As we know, uh, Putin's argument is that there is no Ukrainian nation. Russians and Ukrainians are one. The only good Ukrainian is a Russian. Mm. But on the other hand, there is another discourse, uh, the one that should presumably do better, that is a realist one, which at least is not left-wing oriented, so it shouldn't be hampered by any of these um, contradictions, because it says that great power politics is all there is. But this is where the problem lies. Like, what is exactly is a great power these days? Like John Mearsheimer, who became infamous as a kind of defender of Russian foreign policy since the first, uh, since the previous uh, Ukrainian revolution of 2014, said in a recent uh, interview that Russia's GDP is less than that of Texas. Yeah? Which is a fact. I, I checked that. Uh, it should then logically follow that a country which is, let's call it, not quite Texas, would have much less of an attraction and hence less influence than the European Union whose GDP is actually close to that of the United States as a whole. So on the terms of realist theory itself, it's perfectly clear why Ukraine would want to leave the sphere of influence of not quite Texas and gravitate <laughs> towards the European Union. <laughs> right. Okay, so the only way to model this picture then is to try to reinterpret greatness in some other way. For, for instance, the number of nuclear weapons. Again. Now, mm. on that terms, the not quite Texas suddenly becomes a superpower, yes, and the EU becomes a paper tiger, mm. pr pr protected by NATO. But that's a strange understanding of, of greatness, even when with, compared to uh, our everyday usage um, of the term. Mm. And again, it's uh, also a, a type of uh, theory or, or a type of argument which is uh, also quite unstable, because all that this balance of greatness depends on is, once again, Ukraine's renunciation of nuclear weapons in, in 1994. Yeah. I keep returning to this. Uh, it, it reads in a fascinating way uh, today, so I can only recommend it. Mearsheimer's 94 article, where he actually proposed that Ukraine should not surrender its nuclear weapons. It should keep them as an alternative to joining NATO. So how is it that you think that reads today in the different register? Uh, well, in the sense, it's sometimes so, uh, somewhat comical because uh, 
the Russian official discourse, even the Russian foreign ministry, perpetually cite Mir Shaima's other article, which is, says that why the is called why the West is to blame for the Ukraine crisis. Yes, so they uh, repeatedly cite him as evidence that okay, it's not us, it's the West that <laughs> to blame for everything. But if they looked at the solutions. Yes, that Mir Shaima was advocating in 1994. This is perhaps Russia's greatest nightmare. It's much <laughs> scarier than NATO. Hmm. Yes, it's Ukraine with nuclear capabilities. Okay, it's not corrupted by any ideology, LGBT or other. It's not weak. Russia knows that it's not weak. So uh, this is uh, the solution that uh, would definitely be much worse than what was perceived as um, as the problem in the first place. One of the things you talk about in um, Void Universalism 1 is that there is a conceptual weakness in contemporary international relations scholarship and um, with discussing world politics. And you set out to develop your own theoretical toolbox, we might say, by which we can um, understand potentially building a new conception of world politics. And then I know also you've written about some of the problems, um, we referenced it beforehand, that there was this um, short little uh, publication that's called Russia and the Missing World. Or again, is it Russia in the Missing World? It's Russia and the Missing World, right? And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So can we talk a little bit about maybe have a little more of a theoretical discussion here um, about the concept of the world and the international and maybe how this bears upon diagnosing the problem. And then maybe is there a way then that we can sketch towards thinking about like what we think will happen and how we might be better equipped to think about what we ought to, if we can use that type of normative language, ought to um support insofar as how we would how we would view uh, a global political strategy all right so um in a nutshell um what i wanted to address in um, in, in void universalism is the understanding of world politics that would not be precisely global as you said, yes. Uh, for me, the idea of universalism as a global project or a cosmopolitan project, or basically a project of unification of everything into one entity, is fundamentally problematic, both politically, uh, because it ultimately produces something like a world state uh, whose ultimate nature might change in the course of affairs. And then since it is a world state, there will be no uh, possibility of fleeing it anywhere unless uh, interplanet interplanetary travel were invented by, um, by that time. Um, and conceptually, I don't believe in the existence of everything. Uh, the totality, yes, or the, the universe as the whole yeah, into which everything belongs. This is something on, on which I uh, very much follow Alain Badiou, who argues for what he calls the inexistence of the whole, which uh, he uh, establishes with reference to Russell's paradox and set theory, etc. 
But uh, as such, the idea is that there's, there is no one world. Yes? And the globe, even if we want to consider this category, the globe is obviously not the universe. As in the universe, as we know from contemporary physics, is also not one, uh, but multiple. So there's only proliferation. There's only a multiplicity, and it is the multiplicity of worlds. Yes? So worlds can be defined in uh, the simplest manner as ordered, limited totalities. Yes? So there are not totalities with a capital T, they are not the whole, they are not the universe. Anything can be a totality. The kitchen in which I speak could be analyzed as a world, entirely different from the living room, which is a different world. In sort of uh, the, 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 the type of analysis uh, that I'm making, uh, because the order of objects there would be regulated by, by entirely different rules. So there are multiple worlds, there are multiple worldly orders, yes? and world politics is not something that unifies all of those worlds into the whole. Right? Nothing would be further from my interests or my aspirations. World politics is a politics which is universal for this limited totality, for the world in question. It can be the kitchen, it can be a village in the south of Armenia. Yes, it can be the European continent, or it can be the Milky Way. It doesn't actually matter. What matters is that something is political when it is applied to the world as a whole. It is something, I, the way I define politics is um, ultimately owing very much to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Yeah? So uh, politics is universal in the sense that it pertains to certain principles that arise from all, that are then applied to all. Hmm. And the field of application can be as limited as you wish. Yes, Rousseau was always writing about micro-states and so micro-republics. That was his, uh, his favorite form of political organization. But there was still general will, there was still... Uh, universalism that was realized um, um, uh, in in those settings. So, I don't know, um, there's not much that I can say about something which is global, because for me what is more interesting is perhaps pluralizing the number of worlds as situations in which politics could be meaningfully practiced. Mm. So from this perspective, it could be national, Yes, uh, it will be local or regional, it will be transnationally regional regions of different, uh, uh, of different states. So it's not the level that matters, or it's not the scope that matters, but indeed the principles that are um, affirmed. And those principles are the ones that you derive from the void in ontology and world politics, right? Uh, which happen to be also the kind of like three... Um, great calls from the French Revolution of fraternity, community, and equality. I'm sorry, yes, freedom. Yes, yeah, yes freedom. indeed. Yes, liber liberty, equality, and, and fraternity, or in more contemporary uh, language, community. Uh, which, in a sense, okay, they're, they're derived in a strictly rigorous sense, not from the void itself, in which there is nothing, but from being in the void, yes? Uh, a situation that we can obtain by subtracting 
in any world whatsoever, subtracting all of its rules and basically ending with an inconsistent multiplicity of uh, whoever belongs to it. What can we say about them then? Well, that none depends on anyone else. So relations of dependence are deactivated. None is above or below anyone else. So relations of hierarchy are deactivated. And uh, there's nothing to which someone in this world does not belong. So this is the principle of non-exclusion uh, or, or community. So when one approaches, if you like, the beings of the world in their sheer being, yeah, mm, yeah. this is where one uh, one uh, can derive these principles. But so, but these are principles that define the ontological condition of whoever exists in the world, but not the world itself, because the world is always a certain structure, and the structure always would introduce uh, some hierarchies, some exclusions, elementary dividing lines, such as borders, for example, uh, and certain restrictions. So what politics does is problematize those on the basis of those principles that uh, mm. indeed have, have to do with being in the world. Mm. Mm. This, this might seem like a, a difficult application, but can we take your Troy and I talk about um, the, a lot of your project as serving as a sort of barometer? So it's almost like once you derive those principles from being in the void, you can kind of take and you do this at the end of your book where you talk about various different formations, different possible combinations where it's, you get a little mm -hmm. more freedom, a little more community and a little more equality here and then less equality here, but a lot of community here and like no freedom. And then, you know, you kind of like talk about the possible different variations and you give some historical examples of uh, of political orders that um, that kind of map onto these possible variations or combinations as well. Is there a way that we can look at the kind of global political landscape, geopolitical landscape, um, particularly with the the Ukrainian invasion, and we can apply this like um, idea like, is it because we're living in a world of like self-legitimized postmodern passive nihilism where um, there is no overarching concept? So a strong man like Putin will stand up and, you know, be the, the Schmidtian decision maker or that kind of like overcomes this to be like, well, I'm going to force this kind of like um, construction of, of, of a discourse on top of something to justify my actions in the world? Um, or is is there some way that we can kind of like use the tools that you outline in this book to diagnose, to help us kind of think critically through things that are going on in the world at the moment? Um, yes, uh, indeed. Uh, it's possible to apply this uh, typology of forms of politics. So basically, if there are three principles or three axioms freedom, equality, and community, they can either be present on their own, yes, those are the weakest forms of politics, or there can be two of them in various uh, combinations, or there can be three, in which case we have the, the sort of maximal, uh, uh, maximal form of politics. And the point is that sort of the degree to which one of those axioms is affirmed actually has consequences for the other, because they're not separate things. They're ultimately descriptions of a single condition okay, that, that we might call inconsistent multiplicity. So if one affirms equality but downgrades freedom, 
the equality that, that is being affirmed is kind of perverted. Yes, it's not true equality or proper equality because it is kind of bogged down in the negation of um, of the other uh, axiom. Uh, so, from this perspective, there could be a number of uh, implications uh, uh, drawn. One of them, I don't know if it is uh, the most relevant today, but it was perhaps one of the most relevant while I was writing uh, those books, is uh, precisely the question of equality. It's a question of, of, of equality. Whose either denegation or suppression entails that the affirmations of freedom in ostensibly liberal regimes or even libertarian politics remain kind of inconclusive, incomplete, etc., etc. Yes? So the, it has been noted many times that there are certain problems yes, involved in affirming freedom. And during the COVID pandemic, which quickly receded, from everyone's attention uh, uh, with, with the, the, the current war, we saw it again. Yes, uh, freedom became the rallying cry uh, for basically the absence of any kind of social solidarity or responsibility. Uh, the, the worst type of the libertarian uh, excess. Yes, so why is that? We can indeed see this as the, not so much as a problem with freedom in its own right, but the problem of freedom unaccompanied by the simultaneous affirmation of both equality and community, which alone kind of develops freedom to its fullest potential. Without it, it's going to come out warped and kind of ugly, like we, we saw it happen. Hmm. I'm curious then, Sergey, um, if you don't mind going on a little tangent here, what do you think about the recent writings of Giorgio Agamben, who you've um, who you've worked on in your academic work um, with regard to uh, the use of um, concepts related to freedom uh, to justify or to criticize um, anything that involves regulations on the side of federal governments to ensure safety in the middle of the pandemic? Uh, I have published an article uh, on this. It came out, I think, two months ago in the, three, uh, in the journal called Law and Critique, and it's called A Farewell to Homo Sucker, hmm. which is basically the short version of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to go on. Um, well, I, I, I felt that uh, those uh, writings were disappointing but predictable predictably disappointing or disappointingly predictable or both. Um, and the problem for me was not that, uh, that Agamben, simply that Agamben was writing those things. I mean, uh, it's perfectly possible for uh, philosophers to say something stupid about world affairs or, or any other topic. It's uh, quite ridiculous to expect that a philosopher is clever about everything. Such philosophers did not exist. I could find passages in Aristotle that are, you know, do not merit any any scrutiny or, or serious attention today. And the list can certainly go on, uh, including the, the the contemporary thing. Because the problem is not that. The problem is that those comments actually reveal that 
what Agamben was doing was really consistently applying his own theory. So if we don't like those statements, we cannot just dismiss them as, okay, these are some um, problematic current event uh, current events commentary. They are the applications of the theory. So there's something wrong with the theory, indeed, as I've long suspected. And uh, what is uh, wrong with the theory is uh, the idea, I can only sort of perhaps give a nutshell of a rather complicated argument, but um, the idea is that Agamben articulates two things that do not really belong together. And those are sovereign power and bare life, the concepts in the subtitle of the book. My question ultimately is, what's the and? What does the and stand for? How do you bring them together in this and? How does sovereign power relate to bare life? So in my view, sovereign power and as realized in the state of exception is an empirical concept. It doesn't have transcendental value or transcendental sense. There are only historical variations of states of exception or historical forms by which power is exercised. While on the other side, bare life is a purely transcendental concept that has zero empirical valence. It doesn't have any empirical reference. There is no life of which you can say that it is bare. So this means that the two ultimately cannot meet. And where they meet is the actually highly problematic paradigmatic figure of Homo Sacer that, that Agamben finds uh, in Roman law and then generalizes as the paradigm. But it doesn't even work originally in the paradigm. Because the life of the Homo Sacer is actually not bare. What happens to the Homo Sacer is that he is accused of the crime uh, for which he can be killed with impunity. Where's the bearing of life in this process? I honestly cannot see, especially considering the fact that the actual empirical hominid sacri could be all sorts of religious offenders, pirates, bandits, and so on and so forth, whose life was never bare but had a form uh, which many of us could envy. So, in my view, this indicates the problem uh, with the theory. And because of this articulation, which is so problematic, Agamben insists that any exercise of sovereign power is bound to produce homo sacer. So if it wasn't the pandemic, it would be something else. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, not to go too far from this on this tangent, but we, we did our last episode on on um, on this stuff, and and something we were talking about is that Agamben seems to lack the conceptual tools for having any concept of legitimacy. And that seems to dovetail with your, your claim that any, any place in which sovereign power is executed is, is de facto going to be illegitimate. Yeah. Um, and while yes. that's, that can be very useful as a critical tool, it means in a time where, where crisis um, obtains, you just, do need to, you seem to need to actually have concepts of legitimacy that you can execute so you can figure out what you ought to do as a group. Yes, yes, I, I fully agree because um, the, the problem with Agamben's political theory is that uh, he remains 
tethered to Schmidt, to Carl Schmidt, although in a negative way. So basically, Schmidt's theory of sovereignty is that sovereign power decides on the exception, etc., etc., and that's a good thing. And the Gamban's theory is the same, but saying it's a bad thing. Always <laughs> bad. Very bad. Yes? Couldn't be worse. And it doesn't matter, because it's a democratic sovereignty or fascist sovereignty, it's the same thing. But all you have to do is to simply untether yourself from uh, Schmidt's theory, and then you would have a variety of uh, uh, hi historical forms of uh, also exceptional uh, governance. Right? Uh, mm -hmm. There have always been emergency uh, situations and uh, responses to emergency situations, including incidentally dictatorship, which didn't have the same ominous ring that it has in our day, were perfectly normal modes of governance in um, ancient um, Rome. So uh, the idea that uh, all types of uh, exercise of sovereign power is, first of all, exceptional, or introduces a state of exception, and secondly, that this is always the same as pure domination, both of them uh, are, are indeed entirely uh, untenable. But this crisis, this, this pandemic, basically revealed the problem that was there all along. I mean, the arguments for the identity of democracy and totalitarianism are already there in the first volume of Homo Sacer, but uh, perhaps were gradually kind of uh, forgotten, became less scandalous than they were on the original publication. Um we're, I know I'm just mindful of the time. You've given up so much of your time to us already. Um, if we can, I, maybe we can kind of wrap up this conversation by just briefly touching again um, back to the, the kind of um, the, the current war. And maybe we could do a little prognosticating. Um, what do we think is going to happen? Um, what, what is on the horizon? What's being offered? And what do we think are the realistic options moving forward? Um, does Ukraine join the EU? Um, does Putin get his way and get a Russian um, puppet government in Ukraine? And then five years from now, everyone forgot that this happened, and we the Nord Stream pipeline is flowing gas again into to Western Europe and. Um, there we are again, just uh, going again, uh, the status quo. Does Putin get deposed? Well, what do we think is going to happen here? Uh, it's difficult to predict, uh, especially because the first predictions that uh, were made uh, were very much proven wrong. Yes, so uh, yeah. <laughs> before uh, the war, uh, Everyone was wrong. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So firstly, there were predictions of those who said it wouldn't take place. Yes. Yeah. So here, the the U.S. government must be given credit for actually given giving the entirely uh, correct intelligence down to very very small levels of detail. I'm just wondering what kind of source they must have to yeah um, get, get all that. But um, the second round of predictions was that Ukraine will fall in a few days. We read uh, all that, that uh, Kiev uh, could be captured, the government deposed, etc., etc. Instead, uh, the any attempt at a blitzkrieg that uh, Russia might have planned completely 
uh, misfired. We see now that basically Russia is stuck very early on, as it were, in the, the face of invasion. It's not uh, advancing much or in the last couple of days almost anywhere. And it seemed to have shifted uh, tactics towards indiscriminate shelling of major yeah. cities, including the civilian infrastructure, residential areas, etc., etc. So this is basically uh, already a response to the much greater success of Ukrainian resistance that was not predicted almost by any analysts uh, that, uh, the, that I have read. Um, of course, this also means that uh, in this second version, uh, of uh, Ru Ru Russia's plan, or the, the, the plan B, as it is called, uh, we're going to see many more casualties and a lot more destruction. Yes, Russia practiced this kind of warfare in Chechnya and then in Syria, right? So we saw what became of uh, Grozny and uh, Aleppo, and one can only hope that this same fate does not await Kharkov, uh, Kiev, or, uh, or other cities. But that that is the uh, uh, the, the current strategy. Uh, there is a low-key negotiation process going on. There have already been three rounds of negotiations in which uh, Russia's uh, demands have uh, slightly shifted according to uh, the, 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 the news coverage. So this uh, infamous uh, denazification, which you mentioned, uh, is apparently off uh, the agenda. Uh, for the time oh, so they're being. not they're not concerned about Nazis anymore. That's it. That's, that's, <laughs> Nazis are that's... fine for the time being. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the they, uh, uh, the demands kind of became uh, more specific. They consist in the recognition of, of Ukraine that it lost Crimea, that it lost the Donetsk full region, and not only the breakaway republics and Luhansk again full region, and not only the breakaway. Uh, territories and that it must reinstall this neutral status and abandon any attempts uh, 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 to join NATO. And finally, it, uh, Russia continues to in demand demilitarization, whatever it is supposed to mean. Does it mean a complete yeah. uh, disarmament of the army? So, I mean, th these are still demands that are very, very unlikely uh, to be met. But uh, if there is uh, any hope, is that uh, they have moved, at least from the level of pure rhetoric that cannot yield any actual sort of uh, conclusions or policy uh, uh, changes to something slightly more specific yet still um, unacceptable. So the way the things uh, are going is seem that we might be in this for the long haul. As, as it were. Mm. It might be a longer any... conflict than uh, basically anybody has, uh, has expected. Is there any hope for internal dissension in um, Putin's regime or even just broader uh, in Russia destabilizing um, these actions and making Russia pull back? Or is that just not like it work given Putin's stranglehold on power in the country? Um, it is very unlikely unless there are uh, economic difficulties that are of, a, of catastrophic proportions. 
because uh, Putin has been, in a sense, preparing for this all of his reign, right? This, he knows, I mean, this is how he's going to enter history. Everything else is going to be forgotten. Nobody cares about this anymore. He's all in now. Mm. And uh, he prepared for this precisely by excluding any possibility of domestic dissent. Uh, there are no registered or legal political parties. There are no opposition newspapers, news websites, foreign media is inaccessible. During the last week, Facebook, Twitter, and all of that stuff, including some things I'm not even aware of, have been taken off the air. TikTok as well, uh, for some strange reason. Um, but there's, there's still a possibility, if one really tries, uh, to access information, but there's also a great disincentive to act on this information, which is kind of hard to get, because uh, the, there are highly repressive laws for demonstrating. Yes, And over the weekend, uh, the Russian parliament passed uh, a law that uh, gives a punishment of up to 15 years for discrediting the armed forces, which is a very elastic shall we say, definition that uh, pretty much any statement against the war can be used to uh, mm. to criminalize protest. In fact, it is criminal, a criminal offense to call it a war, because in uh, the official language, it is called a special military operation and not a war. Mm. So the, the situation is uh, quite... Uh, quite tense, which explains also the uh, exit of uh, so many Russians from Russia as, as soon as uh, the, um, the, war, the war in Ukraine uh, started. There's also the discussion of internal dissent within the elite, but uh, here again, I think that Putin has been conducting a policy of preventing the formation of any kind of internal opposition or even the emergence of any sort of strong possible challenger in the army or the security forces that, uh, that, that could topple. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, from what I know, the operation itself was prepared in a very narrow circle of Putin and very close associates. And this mm. probably shows in its execution. Even the army was not fully you know, in the loop. And the soldiers would definitely had no idea what they were supposed to do. Uh, yeah, I think I read that even the generals, the high-ranking generals, weren't didn't even think they were going to actually invade when they did. That it was kind of a surprise. Is that the case? You think? Uh, yes, possibly, uh, but de definitely the 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 units on the ground, uh, they were either told you know, by official propaganda to expect you know people meeting them with flowers instead mm. they were met with uh, hail of bullets pretty much from anybody uh, including um, teenagers hence they encountered the kind of hostile response that they obviously did not expect and they didn't know at first at least what to do because this conflicted so much with the the type of uh, worldview that was uh, was in, in installed by, by the propaganda. So, I mean, that if there's more and more disappointment in the way that this thing is going, 
then possibly there would be some sort of intra-elite challenge. And the thing about intra-elite splits is that when they happen, it creates an opening for the more public or even street protests. Mm. But once the once when the elite is consolidated and the regime is openly repressive, it's almost impossible for any kind of societal resistance to to take place. Now, what do we think about um, the Ukraine and joining the EU or um, getting more direct involvement from NATO, maybe leading up to inclusion into NATO in the future? If this is going to be for the long haul, um, what does this mean? Is the global community going to sort of sit by idly or without being rhetorical and hyperbolic? I mean, do you think this could really spark into something that would be quote-unquote, World War Three, as people are um, indicating or talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, EU and NATO here are totally different avenues. Yes, uh, so uh, in the case of NATO, as I said, it was uh, it's already a little bit too late, at least in the current stage of the conflict. So um, any involvement uh, of NATO would uh, indeed uh, be... Um, seen as the kind of uh, the, the the start of the war with Russia and that would be perhaps uh, World War three depending uh, on how it eventually if Ukraine managed to stand its ground and maintain its independence I would think that it would continue to to pursue this um, this option but the EU is a different story because uh, the uh, um, Ukraine has already filed an application for candidate status. And uh, while the, the actual EU membership takes a very long time to process because it involves numerous adaptations of laws, et cetera, et cetera, for which actually there's simply not the right time at the moment, the candidate status is already a first step to joining. And even that usually takes long, but uh, I think, uh, especially in the current conditions, it is very much in... Um, the EU's uh, own interest, and definitely in the, it's supported by most European uh, societies, that this application for candidate status could be fast-tracked, and at least Ukraine could get that. And then the process of actual accession to the EU definitely will take uh, will take years. Yeah. Troy, you got any other questions here as we kind of aim towards wrapping things up? Um... No, I mean, I think we've we've covered quite a gamut here, including a tangent into philosophical and academic stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I just want to thank you, Sergey, for spending so much time with us. We really appreciate it. And I've gained a lot of uh, insight from someone who's both closer to the, uh, the, the origin of the crisis and also has worked on it for many years at an academic level. It's a great privilege of ours just to have that perspective and also to um, have you on, given that we've spent dozens of hours pouring over Void <laughs> Universalism 1, and um, it's informed a lot of my thinking about um, political philosophy and political theory generally. So uh, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and then, Sergey, is there anything in particular that you would want to say to an audience of mostly um, English speakers, uh, Westerners, um, 
it, like, don't listen to certain media outlets. <laughs> uh, any anything anything that that you can um, impart to us um, as we as we close down here. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, if I had to say one sentence, there's more than one empire. There's more than one way to be imperialist, and uh, generally, there's more than one source of problems in the world than uh, global capitalism. So I think that opening up this mm -hmm. perspective uh, and uh, being able to see how anti-imperialism, for example, can sometimes function simply as the justification of a different, a more insidious, and also a more violent imperialism uh, would be quite important. I would also like to say that uh, there are now, even more so than in the previous crisis, numerous sources uh, of information on Ukraine uh, by journalists who are currently in Kiev writing in English, very often Kiev Independent, for instance, is one such source that I can very much recommend. So one definitely doesn't need uh, to look for perspective for among sometimes politically discredited movements of various types. One can really go directly and uh, make up their own mind about what is happening. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And um, maybe we can get you on in the podcast in the future and we can talk about what is potentially another evil out there besides global capitalism, since so many people, so many people in, in our circles uh, seem to only concentrate on that being the uh, single great evil of the world. So maybe it's good to have a a multipolar discussion of uh, of of problems in the world. Um, that would be great. Yep, evil has many faces, indeed. <laughs> it sure in does. many ways. Uh, Sergey, I also I have a pitch for you for the subtitle of Void Universalism Three. What do you think about phenomenology of worlds? Uh, yeah, that <laughs> might work. Uh, I think it would be a bit close to but you what but you did with logics of worlds. Yeah, that, that, but, uh, that was the, sense, the call. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean everyone's got a everyone's got a copy, right? Like you've got the, the being in time, being in nothingness, being in blah 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 blah. Everyone's got their being in something. So, you know, we're always kind of recycling and, and changing words in yeah. uh <laughs> Well, thank you again so much. Um, we'll let you get going, and um, yeah, we hope you have a have a lovely evening. And um, yeah, I guess we hope for the, uh, uh, we hope for a swift resolution to this to this crisis. I'm I'm assuming you probably have family. You obviously have deep ties in Russia, so um, hope hope that your family are well, and hope that your well being is is being looked after as well during this time because I'm sure it's pretty pretty intense. So yes, thank you. All right.